0: Good morning, church family. As we continue to worship this morning, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Philippians. Specifically, Philippians chapter 2. As Jim said, in his welcome, uh, we, if you're new to Dawson or walking through a series through the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi there. We're in chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 is a section of scripture that we're going to be in. When I was growing up, if you would have come to 106 Elgin Place, especially in my teenage years, I'm the oldest of three, uh, so three sons, uh, two younger brothers, and so Michael and Matthew, David, myself, and if you could have eavesdropped into the conversations/slash dialogue/slash argument that was a occurring, it was a reoccurring theme that often revolved with me and my two younger brothers around division of labor. I don't know if you've ever had these kinds of conversations growing up, but there were certain chores that uh, were to be divvied up uh, according to the sovereign will of Debbie Eldridge, our mother. And she uh, would, would uh, there's just certain things that had to be done. We had to uh, cut the grass. We had to take out the trash. We had to clean the dishes and put them up. We had to de-weed the flower. bed, all those kinds of things in the course of weeks had to be done. And uh, the way we did it at the Eldridge household is uh, the person that did it the previous week didn't have to do it the next week. And so we sort of had this agreement of who uh, was up to bat next in these various responsibilities. And you can imagine that they were oftentimes some heated conversations around division of labor. And they often went like this. That's not my job. That's Michael's job this week. That's Matthew's job this week. Uh, My mom would Uh, remind us that I'm not asking you whose job this is. When you have a job, you get paid, and guess what? This is just your privilege, and you're going to do it. And we would say, yes, ma'am. We would say, yes, ma'am, most of the time. And I think about those divisional labor conversations because if you are a parent, you're going to hear that in some semblance, that's not my job. You don't have to be a parent to have those kinds of conversations. I mean, if you have a roommate, maybe you're in college. You know, this is a, a parental weekend for some of our colleges, and so we've got some parents that are here. We welcome you to Dawson. We're so glad to be able to come alongside of what God is doing in the life of your uh, son or daughter while they're at college. And uh, if you have roommates in college, you better have a division of labor conversation. You've got to figure out in the course of the semester who's going to do what in, in regard to cleaning, right? If you are married and you don't have children, uh, the frustrations are going to fester. Resentment is going to resound. If you don't clearly articulate who's going to do what and actually follow through with that, whose job is it anyway? And it's a question that we ask not only in our homes, not only in our dorms, but it actually is a question that has a lot of spiritual connotations to it. Whose Job is it anyway, for you to look more like Jesus as, as a follower of Jesus, whose job is it? Whose responsibility is it for you to grow in christ's likeness? Is it God's responsibility? Is it your responsibility? Is it 75, 25, 50, 50, 100,? How, how do we divvy up the division of labor in what we know to be called our sanctification? Don't be scared by that word. To be sanctified comes from the word of of holiness throughout the New Testament. There are three elements of our our growth in Christ, our justification when we are saved by the finished work of the gospel. We commit our life to him. Between now and our death, we're in that period that we call our sanctification, where we grow more in Christ's likeness. This is what we're talking about this morning. And then when we meet him in death or we meet him in his second coming, then we will be in that place of glorification. So this morning is a sanctification kind of conversation. How do we grow to look more like Jesus? Your responsibility, God's responsibility. Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, he helps us to to clearly see how God works in us and how you and I have a responsibility to join that work in Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, As you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When I was in college, my sophomore year, I was taking New Testament Greek. I had a professor, Dr. Green. He would always say, when you see the first word, That you see in verse 12 of chapter 2, you need to ask a question. When you see a therefore, do you see it there in your copy of God's Word? When you see a therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. What is it connecting us to? And it is an important question. Because what Paul is saying here is intimately connected to what comes before. And if we, if we misunderstand and take this passage out of context, we'll misunderstand the connectivity that Paul is making between the glorious declaration that has just come previous to verse 12. Therefore, it's drawing us back to the Mount Everest of Pauline passages in uh, verse 5 through verse 11, where, where Paul gives an itinerary of Jesus' ministry as he was eternally there in creation, eternally present there at the right-hand throne of the Father. There's never been a time where Jesus has not existed as the Word, but guess what? He didn't consider equality was something to be grasped, but he came to this earth he came to this earth not only to live a life that we couldn't live, a life of perfection, but he lived a, a servant, a slave's life. What does that mean? What well, means that he would, he would meet a, a slave's death, a death, not just a natural death, not a death from old age, but a horrific, brutal death upon the cross, a uh, type of death that was reserved for slaves, for servants. It was the worst type of death. And so what we discover here is Paul is giving us this downward descent of Jesus's ministry. He he is in eternity past there with the Father. He comes to this earth. He lives the life of a servant, and he ultimately dies the death of a servant for you and for me. And there's this wonderful, great reversal in verse 10 and verse 11, where God exalts him through the resurrection. And as Jesus has tasted, he has tasted hell itself, death itself. He has tasted the pains and betrayal of your sin and my sin. All of it is upon him as he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this moment, he is drinking fully the weight and penalty of sin upon the cross. And it's in that moment, upon his death, as he's buried in a Uh, borrowed to that he is ultimately exalted back to that place at the right-hand throne of the Father, and every tongue will confess, and every knee will bow. And Paul says, in light of this, therefore, in light of what Jesus has done for you, in light of his ongoing ministry, Through the power of the Spirit of God, as he has ascended to the right-hand throne of the Father, and he sends his Spirit to live among us and in us as Christians, therefore, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know, your responsibility and my responsibility is to hear in light of the authority of Jesus, men and women, we as followers are called to work out our salvation as God is working in us and through us. You see, Jesus' ascension is a reminder as every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that all of us at one time Will sometime, whether it's here on earth or in eternity, every one of us will bow our knee before the authority and lordship of Jesus. The question isn't if you're going to do this, the question is when are you going to do this? His king, his kingly nature is so sovereign and expansive that, that even the demonic presence. of of demons and hell will, will bow down, that there is no one that is immune to his reign and to his rule. And so the question is, will you bow here on earth to the authority that Jesus has now for us to live in light of? Now, how do we bow before him when we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Verse 13, because we know it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now we're back to that original question, whose job is it anyway? Whose job is it for us to look more like Jesus? Whose job is it for us to grow in holiness? Note, verse 12 and verse 13 answer this question, but they answer it together. These are the heads and tails of our sanctification. What God has joined together in verse 12 and verse 13, let no man, let no woman, let no scholar, let no theological framework uh, pull apart. That God has called us through the Holy Spirit to work out our salvation. That's your responsibility. That's my responsibility. But as we do that, we're reminded that God is working in us and through us. So the very good deeds that we do through your volitional choice and my volitional choice, they're empowered by the Holy Spirit working in us. This is a divine project where God is working in us and we are called to cooperate and work in a way that he is calling us to live a life. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, we had a little game called telephone. Do you remember playing this game? I don't know what you maybe called it in school. It's a simple game. If I describe it, you'll probably remember it. But we have a phrase, okay? And we turn to your brother or your sister or your aunt or your uncle. Oftentimes it's Thanksgiving, Christmas, everybody's gathered together, and you come up with a phrase, you whisper it into your neighbor's ear, and they in turn whisper it to their neighbor. Do you know what I'm talking about right here? Telephone, you got it? We're good. We know we're tracking with this. Now, the hilarity that ensues is that the longer the line is, the further the original statement is going to be from what gets repeated. Now this can Happen, not only with your Thanksgiving gatherings, not only with some sort of a, a you know, nonsensical phrase that you come up with in the moment, but you know what? It can happen in the church's life too. We can mishear passages of Scripture like verse twelve and like verse thirteen, and we can make them say things that they actually didn't say. You know, Paul doesn't say, and we don't need to mishear. Paul doesn't say, "Hey." You do your part, and God will do his part, and then you'll be saved. We don't need to mishear this passage as if Paul is saying, if you go halfway, God will then meet you halfway, and then you will be saved. Paul's not talking about how we become followers of Jesus. He is talking to followers of Jesus. He is not talking about how we're justified in the finished work of Jesus. He is talking to the justified who are called to live out their faith in the ongoing work of the Spirit, making us look more like Jesus. There is nothing worse than you can do to hear this passage and to think that you've got to do something. You've got to be someone. You've got to hang On enough to be saved, you can solely, wholly misunderstand what salvation is. Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. So every person in here needs to understand clearly that we are saved by faith alone, through his grace alone, in Christ alone. But our faith doesn't come alone. It comes with a responsibility and a calling for us to work, to do good deeds. That doesn't save us. It's because we are saved that we can, and we're empowered and called to do. So don't mishear this passage and think Paul is saying, meet God halfway, and he'll meet you halfway, and guess what? You will become a Christian. Nor, on the flip side, we can read verse 13 and hear. Uh, Paul says, verse 13, I remind you, it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We can hear that passage and think that Paul is saying, well, you know something, just let go and let God. Paul Paul's saying, God works in us for his will and his good pleasure, So I don't have any responsibility. I wash my hands clean of any kind of responsibility. I'm not called to do anything. I'm in this holy passive state as a Christian. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with a holy reverence and respect for God. So in this passage, Paul isn't saying for us to be passive. He's actually calling us to be active in our faith, to choose to pursue holiness, to choose to pursue work, to choose to pursue Christ. That is a calling that you have and I have, but it is only enabled and it's only empowered by the work of God through His Spirit in you. This is the heads and tails of your sanctification. We need some help, maybe, to understand this a little bit better. I heard a pastor years ago give an illustration of this that has always stuck with me, and it's helpful. He talks about a motorboat. Think of a motorboat. If you're on a motorboat and you're out at the lake, you're in a motorboat and, you know, you, you decide when you want to start that motorboat. I mean, you really do. I mean, there can be some complications to it. But on the whole, uh, you know, you're cranking it up. You're pushing a button and off you go. You control the throttle of it. I mean, you're, you're deciding. You're deciding how fast you want to go, how slow you want to go. You, you're really controlling where you're going to go right there. It's all, for the most part, in your control. I mean, of course, there are some exceptions to this, but you get the point of the illustration. Now, he says, now compare that motorboat experience to you sailing on the lake, sailing out in the sea. Now, if you were to do that, there is a responsibility that you have, right? You have to hoist the sails. I mean, there there are things you have to have the rudder right there, and you're controlling where you're going to go. But ultimately, you understand that you aren't going to have much of an afternoon at the lake unless the wind is blowing, and it takes those sails, and it empowers you forward. You are dependent upon the wind to sail. And for us to sail spiritually, For us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we need the wind to blow in us and through us. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he comes to this point where he says the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it goes, so it is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, if you look in John chapter 3, you have wind and you have Spirit. You have wind and spirit. In the Hebrew Bible, there's one word for wind and spirit. That word is ruach. In the New Testament Bible, in the original language of the New Testament, there's one word for wind and there's one word for spirit. That is pneuma. So when Jesus is talking about the wind blowing, he is not talking about meteorological cold fronts that come in on a Monday morning like this last week. I, you, you, I mean, what a beautiful week it has been because the hangover, the humidity of this summer has finally passed and you are outside in the morning. Maybe you're walking and you could feel the cool breeze coming in and you thought, finally, football weather is here. Finally, we're headed into October. Why? Because the wind Wind is coming in here, that front. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He, he is talking about the Spirit of God that is blowing in us and through us, that empowers us and enables us to do good works in His name. But you must, as a Christian, hoist the sails. God, through His Spirit, doesn't read His Bible to you or for you. You choose to open the Bible and with your eyes to study it and read it. You choose to be a man or a woman of prayer. You choose to be a person who decided to get up this morning on what is a beautiful day I think it is. I haven't been outside in, in a few hours here, so correct me if I'm wrong about this. But it's a beautiful day. It's been a beautiful week. You chose to make a decision to hoist yourselves by coming here to pray, to hoist yourselves by being a person of worship this morning. You choose to hoist yourselves by looking at your budget and saying, you know something? I'm going to be a man. I'm going to be a woman. We're going to be a family that commits to give sacrificially. You are making those decisions. When you live in a neighborhood and you have a neighbor that lives two doors down and there's a death in his family, there's a death in her family, and you choose to go to the grocery store, and you choose to make a recipe, and you choose to knock on that door, and you choose to hand that to that person, you are doing those works. But what God reminds us through Paul is, is the wind was blowing. The wind of the Spirit was enabling. The wind of the Spirit was empowering you. So don't think that you're called to do that in your own strength. And don't think that you can do that in your own strength. It is this beautiful image of the Spirit of God blowing in your life. For what purpose? To do good works so that people may pat us on the back? No. So that people may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. This joint project of your sanctification, this joint project of God blowing in you and through you for you to do good works as you hoist the sails and you feel the Spirit moving in you, it leads to a call here in verse 14 that I think is sort of surprising. Paul has this rich theological exploration. of of God's sovereign will blowing in you through his spirit, your human responsibility. It's all in light of that glorious passage of who Jesus is and how is he going to land this plane and call us to live this out. He says, you know, the best thing that I can tell you is stop grumbling. Quit disputing. Be people who live, verse 15, blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. uh, Paul's got some language here that we can get lost in. But the essence of what Paul is saying is, is, I'm in a Roman prison. And I'm glad to be there. Because I am there for being a vessel for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I don't get out of here, and if I never see you again, I am glad and I rejoice with you all because of his work in and through you here. Verse 18, likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. It was worth it, Paul is saying in the end. It's worth it, church of Philippi, if you stop complaining, stop grumbling, stop uh, having these disputes among yourself— and you choose to forgive one another, you choose to walk in unity, this is surprising. I think in some respects, we, we, we would, might think that Paul have a call to sell our possessions and give it all to the poor, uh, leave our home and, and, and go to a place where no one has heard the gospel. You would think that Paul might say this, but he is very boots on the ground here he's saying there's a bunch of you that just do not get along, and the best way that you can work out your salvation is stop being so cantankerous. That's what Paul's saying here. And I think this is a word for us. At times, we forget that God has sent his son not just to forgive us, of our grumbling and frustration and bitterness and unforgiving heart so that he can get us to heaven when we die. Yes, that is true, but guess what? There's a beautiful truth that that God has sent his son to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death so that the Spirit of God dwells in us so that a little bit of heaven can, can be in us here on the earth as we look more like Jesus. Sometimes people say things about Christians, well, you just kind of have to overlook that person because that's just who they are. And it's a reminder to us, Jesus didn't die on the cross just so that we can just stay like we naturally are. He calls us to this renovation of our soul, he calls us to, to chip away at the hardness of our heart, the bitterness that so easily entangles us, the grumbling, the complaining. This is what Paul is talking about 2,000 years ago, and it might as well be that Paul's living right in our midst, and he's reading the headlines. He is he's, he's puts his finger up, and he knows where the wind is blowing, and he says, the best thing that I can tell the church in 2021 is to be the people of God who look different than the world. And we cannot do that in our own strength, but praise God, Paul reminds us that he doesn't call us to do that. I I read a story this last week of a A conversation between two co-workers where one of the co-workers uh, asked the question, what is it like to be a Christian? She had to have answered this question in the midst of September, in the midst of October. It had to be a fall. She had to be looking around because this is how she answered that question. It's like being a pumpkin, she said. God picks you from the patch. He brings you in. He washes off the dirt. Then he cuts off the top and he, and he scoops out that yucky stuff. He removes the seeds of doubt and hate and greed. And guess what? He's committed to do that until we meet him in heaven. And then he carves on us as we work out our salvation, a smiling face. And he puts a light inside so that we can shine brightly. Now, is that a perfect illustration? No. But is it a really good reminder? Yes. It is a really good reminder of why you are here and why I am here. We are called in our neighborhoods, in our schools, we are called in our families to be people who are shaped by his values, shaped by his word to shine brightly for him. And we shine brightly for him as we gaze upon him. And we're like solar panels. Our power is only connected to the exposure that we have, not to the S U N, but the S O N, the Son of God, as we sit before Him in His Word and in prayer, and as we soak in His radiance for a purpose, so that this week, this afternoon, this day, that you and me, that we can gaze on his kingly brightness, so that our faces may display his likeness, ever changing from glory to glory, mirrored here, may our lives reflect his story in our words, in our attitudes, in our action, at school, at home, in the neighborhood, everywhere we are, as we shine brightly for him. Amen?